Please take your Bible and turn with me, surprisingly not to 1 Peter. We're taking a little sidetrack today to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is found in the Old Testament, and it's a very powerful book. And we're trusting God to speak, I am at least, to you as he has to me through this passage of Scripture. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who has found himself or herself troubled lately. Maybe even as recently as this morning, or maybe in the wee hours of the morning, you awoke prematurely, and there was a lot of stuff on your mind that was bothering you. You were distressed by the circumstances in your life. Well, this message is for you. There's insight that we will gain from God through this man Ace's life that will help us deal properly with trouble when it comes our way. Trouble is a part of everybody's life, really. I don't know anybody that's lived very long who doesn't have some sort of trouble he or she is dealing with. And trouble is purposeful from God's perspective. It never catches God off guard when you and I find ourselves in trouble. Do you know that? It has to be filtered through His will for you and me, if we are children of God in particular, and really in general to all mankind, it has to be filtered through His will. I love the verse of Scripture. Perhaps you know it and have quoted it many times to yourself when you were having trouble. Found in Psalm 55, 22, where the Bible says, Cast your burden on the Lord, for He cares for you. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be forsaken. I love that. But what is obscured to our English reading minds and hearts, really to our disadvantage, is literally this is what the Hebrew says in that statement. Cast what He has given on you, and He will sustain you. What does that mean? Well, it means what it says. That God gives us burdens. Interesting. I thought he was the great burden bearer. He is. He gives us burdens for what purpose? So that we can cast our burden upon him. Think about Jesus' call to follow him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. My yoke is easy, Jesus says. My burden is light. What makes the burden that God gives us that we interpret as troublesome most of the time? What makes it light is because if we yoke up with the Lord Jesus Christ, you know the concept of a yoke, right? It's a device that was used in farming in in some parts of the world today, but certainly in biblical times where a team of oxen would be yoked up together, sometimes as many as five or six. In this case, what does Jesus call us individually to do? We are to take His yoke upon us. A picture of submission. We are to submit ourselves to Him. Take His yoke upon us, and then what will we do? We will find this heavy weight that is crushing will all of a sudden begin to lighten. Why? Because He's the one who is doing the pulling. And we're just along for the ride. And what a ride it is. If you do not know Jesus Christ... Oh, my goodness. Get to know Him. Take His yoke upon you. Do you know what that means? It means be submitted to Him. 
The only way you and I will finally be able to deal properly with any trouble, any distress, any burden that we face in our lives is to come and humble ourselves before the Lord and be yoked up to the Lord. Well, I'm going to do something that's somewhat out of character for me this morning in terms of my teaching. We're going to read a big section of Scripture, and as I read along, I'm going to make some comments. And by the time I finish reading this lengthy passage, there won't be much sermon left, which will be a joy for you. That burden will be lifted. <laughs> so let's begin with Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 1. So Abijah, a king of Judah, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. Does the disturbance in this land trouble you? And what we're going to see is this disturbance, as burdensome as it is to us in America, it's nothing compared to the burden that Christians are bearing in many places in this world. And we're pretty kindergartenish when it comes to burdens and disturbances. But we have our disturbances. We have our personal disturbances. And we have our national disturbances. We have disturbances within the church. We have disturbances. But in the first ten years of Asa's reign as king of Judah, there was a lack of disturbance. Look at verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. So what's that saying? What he did, he did a purging of idolatry. All these things which are mentioned at the beginning of verse 2 and following have to do with idolatry. But then he didn't simply do something negative. He added something very positive to it. And that was he commanded the people of Judah to seek the Lord. And this is a motif in the entire book of Second Chronicles. If you read the book of Second Chronicles with that thought in mind, it will be a different book when you read it. Seek the Lord. We know what God says to the prophet Amos. He says, seek me, God says, and live. There is no real life apart from seeking the Lord. And we're talking about spiritual life. People are dead people walking without God in their lives. And the way to remedy that is to seek the Lord. And He, in His grace, will allow you to find Him. Let's continue in verse 5. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was undisturbed under Him, Twice already there's this reference to a lack of disturbance. And we'll see what the tie-in is. In verse 6, He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. And there was no one at war with Him during those years because the Lord had given Him rest. God wants to give you and me rest. That's the point of this message today. He wants to give us His support. And inherent in that is rest that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that your troubles will cease. Not at all. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Was Jesus troubled? Well, there were times when He was moved. We know that. 
when he came and overlooked the city of Jerusalem, he began to weep over the city. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wish that I could be like a mother hen and just gather you under my wings. We see the tender heart of God in Jesus in that regard. It was troubling because he knew that they were being abused, really, by the teaching that they were receiving. And he wanted to gather them. When he went to the graveside of his good friend Lazarus, and he looked into the cemetery which was filled with corpses which had been buried or entombed, the Bible says Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He's human. He felt the pain of losing a friend. Even though he knew that God was going to use him to raise his friend from the dead. But it did not prevent him from weeping. Let me tell you something. God weeps over us. Did you know that? God weeps over us as His children. We grieve God. There's not a parent present who has not had a child or several children whom you parent who have not caused you to weep. We weep. Why? Because we love. That's why, right? Our God loves us. Jesus loves us. We have troubles, but the good news is Jesus, although He experienced troubles, He was not defined by His trouble. He says in John 15, this is remarkable to me, in light of what He had to deal with in His life in terms of pushback from people and downright mean treatment from people. This is phenomenal. He's about to go to His death on the cross. And He knew full well what that would mean in terms of the physical dimensions. It was horrible. One of the great historians of the Roman world, who was anything but a Christian, said this about crucifixion. He said it's the most cruel form of capital punishment known to man. But that wasn't the big thing that Jesus had to deal with. The bigger problem was that He was going to be cursed by His own Father. He had to become a curse for us when He died on the cross to take the punishment of our sin so that we might know the Father and have eternal life and bring honor and glory to God. That's the reason, of course, that we have been created to begin with. Jesus says this in John 15. He says, I have said these things to you in the upper room. I have said these things to to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus was joyful all the time. There was never a moment when He was absent of joy. Even when He was crying, He had joy in the sense that He knew His Father was sovereign in control and God caused all things to work together for good in and through the life of Jesus Christ as He does through our lives. Now, let me see if I can find my place after that statement. Look at verse 7. For He said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because why? We have sought the Lord our God. Let's stop here just a moment. What do you suppose would happen in the United States of America if this group of people here and the group that came before and the group which came last night, which probably amounts to roughly 900 or 1,000 people, what if we began to seek the Lord? 
Do you think it would make a difference in America? Well, I cannot predict what would happen in terms of reversing the tide of evil that is swept into this country and probably the tide of God's judgment upon this country. I can't comment about that. That would be mere speculation. But what I do know, it would make a difference in this community. If a thousand people got serious about seeking God, it would change the landscape of El Paso. We have sought Him, and He has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. That's a, an impressive army. Almost 600,000 valiant warriors armed for battle. And verse 9 introduces a very troubling scenario for Asa and Judah. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marisha. Now some skeptics would say, oh, well, that's just exaggerated. There's no way that anybody could take a million people from Ethiopia up to Judah in southern Israel and carry a military campaign. The the area between Ethiopia and there would not sustain those people in terms of just what they would consume in terms of food and water. Well, I beg your pardon if you have that viewpoint. Herodotus, not a believer himself, but a Roman historian, made this statement about Xerxes, who was the emperor of Persia, that Xerxes came from Persia, modern-day Iran, and crossed all the way over to Greece, and there were three million in his army. Let's just say that was exaggerated a little bit. Well, let's say half that many. 1.5 million people. That is part of not folklore, that really happened. And this is not some kind of fairy tale we're reading when we read the Bible. It happened. Look at verse 10. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah at Marisha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, and by the way, the word called, this is what it literally means, he roared to God. He cried out to the Lord. I mean, Asa knew things were not good for him and Judah. And he was not going to be prim and proper in the way he approached the Lord. He just let it all out to the Lord in speaking to the Lord. You ever find yourself in a situation that's really troubling? You need to learn how to cry out to the Lord. He responds to that. Look at what he says. Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle. Stop there just a moment. Where was he centering his attention? He wasn't centering on himself. Who was he centering it on? On the Lord, right? And the scripture goes on to say, in this battle between the powerful, and he's referring, of course, to the Ethiopian army, and those who have no strength, he's speaking of the Judean army, so help us, O Lord our God. Why? For we trust in you. And the word trust is a word which means to lean someone's full weight upon something or someone else. That's what real faith is. It's leaning your whole being, spirit, soul, and body on the Lord. To trust the Lord completely, implicitly, to trust the Lord. And so the text 
goes on to say, And in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are God. Let not man prevail against who? You. And it's interesting. It's not prevail against us, but you, Lord. So who was fighting the battle from his point of view? The Lord was. He had learned the secret of victory. The victory that you and I might have in our lives when we're troubled is only to be found when we recognize our weakness, trust the Lord, and do as He says. And look what happens in verse 12. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover for they were shattered before the Lord and before His army. And they carried away very much plunder. They destroyed all the cities around Gerar for the dread of the Lord, that's the fear of the Lord actually, had fallen on them. And they despoiled all the cities for there was much plunder in them. They also struck down those who owned livestock and they carried away large numbers of sheep and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Plunder, what is that? That's the spoils of war. Here's another application to our lives. If we fight our own battles, whether they're personal or part of a group of people who are engaged in some sort of battle, if we do it in our own energy, in our own strength, we depend upon ourselves and not upon the Lord, we may win. It'll be a temporary victory, though, and it will be one that grows stale very quickly. It will even be bitter in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls. But if we let the Lord fight the battle, the plunder will be incredible. The victory will be sure and complete. And we will have an experience like Asa and Judah had. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. This is very significant. Now, the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded. He's obviously a prophet. And look at what... He said when he went out to meet Asa, listen to me, Asa. Can you imagine someone coming up to President Obama and saying, listen to me, Barack? He didn't even say king. He just called him by his first name. Listen to me. And why did he do that? It's because he was speaking as God would speak. And all Judah, he didn't just address Asa, he addressed Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. Here's the key. If we seek Him, what happens? We find Him. He's with us. And it goes on to say that if you seek Him, He will let you find Him. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. Can you imagine stiff-arming God? The audacity and the ignorance of such attitude? Stiff-arming God to think that we are going to win against God? It's impossible. And who would want to win against him when we know who he is? We're going to see a little bit more about his nature as we work our way through this passage of Scripture. Verse 3, For many days Israel was without the true God. This is the prophet still speaking. He's reminiscing. He's saying probably prior to Asa's, what he's talking about, for many days, that's a way of saying for many years probably, Israel was without the true God. And it was directly linked to the fact that they had no teaching priest. They had ritual, but no teacher. And this is the great value of having people who are gifted to teach God's Word. We sit under their teaching. We listen and we learn as we hear God speak. And without law, if you don't have 
teaching, you're going to have lawlessness. That's a big problem in this country. The churches in America have sought to cater to the felt needs of people who come to the church instead of teaching the Word of God. And let me stop and say this. This message should be relating to your felt need of trouble. It's the Word of God. But for this church or any other church to foster the attitude, we've got to let these people feel comfortable here. And we're not here to make you feel uncomfortable. But we forget God. God gets out of the picture very quickly with that mentality. And it weakens the fabric of the church. And when the church is weakened, the society is weakened. And the way to remedy that is to insist upon hearing and teaching the Word of God. Verse 4 says, But in their distress, here we go again, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought Him. And what happened? He let them find Him. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Oh, I, my heart sort of leaps when I read that. Be strong and do not lose courage. This perhaps reminds you of what God said to Joshua when he was on the brink of taking that mighty throng of once enslaved Israelites into the promised land. He said, have I not commanded you, Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified and do not be discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord our God is with us if we seek Him. He will let us find Him. And here it is. We have to be committed to seeking the Lord, making that the tenor of our lives, the focus of our lives. In David's remark, and remember that David is a man after God's own heart, David says this in 1 Chronicles 16 11. He says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face or presence continually. David understood that. David was the great, 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 I don't know many how great he was, grandfather to Asa, but Asa is reflecting this in the way he goes about carrying out the first ten years of his kingship. He faces off with Zerah and the Ethiopians, wins an incredible victory. God wins it, really, as we saw. It was he who won. And so we're going to skip down to verse 1 of 16, not to in any way... Ignore the things that are there in the text between there and here, but in the interest of time. Read it yourself, and you'll see more things there, I'm sure. Verse 1 of 16, In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Basha was a bully. He loved bullying his brother country, Judah. And he just loved fighting And verse 2 says, Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord. In other words, he robbed the utensils and the offerings which had come into the temple and the king's house. He emptied his own coffers of silver and gold and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus. Ben-Hadad was the king of the greatest nations in that region. And this is what he said in his communication with Ben-Hadad. 
Let there be treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, which Basha had been building, and with them he fortified Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani, the seer, it's another word for prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. This is different, isn't it? From the previous encounter, which happened 25 years earlier. Boy, time has a way of eroding our memory. And this is not short-term memory loss here. It's not because Ace is getting old and he's not able to remember what he said in the last sermon he preached. Sometimes I'm wondering that myself. If I said this already in this message, it's pretty frightening to think about. But I get over it pretty quick because I have short-term memory issues that I don't even remember. It's awesome. But this is long-term memory loss. You don't forget what I'm told, at least. I don't have any experiences. But when you get older, you don't forget what happened 30 years ago. You remember it like it was yesterday. But you forget what happened 30 seconds ago, right? This is not that kind of loss. He had quit seeking the Lord. Can you imagine? This man who was so used by God. And I'm not here to bash him at all. He serves as an illustration for good and for bad for us. Most of his life he sought the Lord. But there's no time that we retire from seeking the Lord. Do you understand that? Once more, I know I've already said this once. I'm saying it again. What David says, seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence. How often? Continually. Till I draw my last breath, whenever that may be, I am charged to seek the Lord's presence. And I am wise if I do that. Now, many of you are sort of in my age group. I don't insult anybody, but many of you, by looking at you, some of you are there. And and if you, you probably get there, so don't just write this off. What I'm about to say is what I've discovered as I've lived longer. I was thinking about this this past week. I'm 66 years old. Twice as old as Jesus was when he died. Boy, that hit me like a ton of bricks when I was thinking about that. Not that I'm 66, but I've had two lifetimes compared to Jesus in his humanity. And I was lamenting that I had not sought him as I should more completely in this life. And the Lord in his graciousness, I didn't hear his voice, but I sensed he, he was saying to me a couple of things. One thing he's saying, well, Mike, there's nothing you can do about the previous 66. They're gone. But you got today. And today you can seek me. And when you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. And it's going to be the way it was supposed to be some of those times when you weren't necessarily seeking me. Are you seeking the Lord today? Here's the good news. It's possible in that 66 years, the th- last 33 
my, my second life compared to Jesus first. It's possible, and I think it's probable without in any way sounding egotistical because, remember, what I do is inconsequential. It's what he does through me or you as we trust in him and lean on him, right? Leaning on the Lord, that's what trust is. And what happens is when we're scared to death like Asa was and we're shaking in our boots because we don't have what it takes, that's exactly where we need to be in trust in the Lord. But when that happens, every once in a while the Lord uses us. He uses us. And what the Lord went on to say, he says, Son, I know all the failure in your life. I know your predisposition to sin. I know how you substitute lesser gods for me, the one true God. I know that. But I do know there have been times when you have trusted me over these years. And in a way, even though Jesus had 33 years, son, what what I'm doing through you and people who learn to seek the Lord and trust in the Lord, I'm extending those years of Jesus' life. You follow what I'm saying? And I think this is what the Lord said. I'm giving extra years for Jesus to be Jesus in you and through you. That's true for all of us if we know Him. And Asa fell off. He fell away. He didn't lose his salvation, but he just got to that point when he just sort of put it in neutral. Do you know that the word groove and grave come from the same English word? And if you and I find ourselves in a rut spiritually, we're just sort of idling and we're waiting till we can retire and do this and do that and do the other, have a good time. We've worked hard in this life to get into that position. What we need to understand is we need to rev it up. You understand what I'm saying? We need to trust the Lord more fully every point of the journey. And what happens when we do that? God's going to get mileage out of your life and my life. This is what the Bible says about David. In Acts 13, I believe it's verse 36, the Bible says this, when God had fulfilled his purpose in David's life for his generation, David fell asleep. And that's what we need to think of. Keep trusting God. Keep seeking God. When my time is up, I'm out of here. And God, hopefully, will have gotten some mileage out of my life and your life as a result. We need to understand this. We're not here for ourselves. It's a, it's a great ride. It's the ultimate joy ride when you follow Christ and take His yoke upon you. But we know that the Lord is such a good God. And He oversees and overcomes so much in our lives. He's awesome. Look at verse 8. We're not the Ethiopians in the Lubim, an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. There it is again. What did He do? He sought the Lord. What did He do? He relied on the Lord. What did God do? God shared the victory with Him. And that's true in our lives as well. Now here's the key verse. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. That's it. And I'll come back and spend just a few more moments on that when I get through verse 10. He goes on to say in the latter part of verse 9, You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on you will surely have wars. Whereas He had peace. Remember? 
the nation was undisturbed for 10 years. Then this battle with Zerah and the Ethiopians. Then 25 years. 35 years of relative peace. And then all of a sudden he says, because you resorted to trusting in somebody besides me, the result is going to be you're going to have wars from now on. Then verse 10 says, Asa was angry with the seer. And let me stop here just a moment. Actually, who was Asa angry with? He's mad at God, wasn't he? Because who was Hanani? Hanani was the messenger. He was the prophet. He was just bringing the mail customized for Asa to Asa. And what did he do with Asa? Put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. Now look at the next thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. It's the old kicking the dog syndrome. When man gets mad at his wife, he has enough restraint not to kick her but he kicks the dog. That's the idea. He kicks the people around. That's not like we, the Asa that I see in the early life. Is it, does it seem different? And it's obviously different because he had a wrong perspective on trouble. He resorted to other resources instead of relying upon the one true God. Now, Here's the question. What evidence must there be in our lives to ensure God's support? We must know that God scrutinizes our lives. He's not detached. He's not remote. His eyes move to and fro throughout the earth. He's not frantic. He is urgent. He's looking for men and women just like you. Men and women whom He is wanting to support. God is watching us. Remember that song, Beth... Bette Midler sang, and, but that's not all the title to it, from a distance. That's the way worldly people look. And they want it to be at a distance. They don't want him to get too close because he might cause them to change their way of living from a distance. The Lord never watches us from a distance. He's omnipresent. He's with you and me wherever we go. He knows what's going on. The Bible says in Psalm 34:15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Proverbs 15.3, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. In His omnipresence, He's also omniscient. He knows everything about us. God is scrutinizing us, our lives. But also, the reason that we can have the support of God, and this is critically important, we recognize God's sovereignty over our lives. He is our King. We are His servants. Look at the text again in verse 9 of 16. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support what group of people? Those whose heart is completely His. The word heart means the center or the middle of something or someone. And as it relates to people created in the image of God, all people are. The totality of man's inner nature, his mind, his will, or her emotions. What does it mean to have a heart that's all God's? Well, once more, I appeal to what David said in Psalm 86, 11. He says, to God, give me an undivided heart. David knew his own tendency. His tendency was to have a fragmented heart. And he prays to God, give me an undivided heart, Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name is the way one of the translations says what David says, unite it. It's all broken up. Unite it. You know, God does it in such a way 
that it's as if it had never been broken before. He is the perfect healer. We must understand that our hearts, according to the Bible, Jeremiah 17:9, this is the prophet saying, that his heart and all of mankind's heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's our heart condition. Our hearts are given to fragmentation, to prone and they're prone to wander. One of the great hymns of our faith is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written by a man named Robin, Robert excuse me, Robinson. And Mr. Robinson was born into a, an interesting family. His father came from great wealth. His mother was a peasant girl. And when they married, his father was basically disowned by his father. When Robert came along, he only lived five years before his father died. And his grandfather, to show his continued disgust with the relationship and the child born of this relationship, it was a a legal and a holy relationship, a marriage. He was so disgusted with this offspring, Robert Robinson, that he disinherited him. And in the disinheritance decree, he saw to it that he got ten shillings and six pence. This was a wealthy man. I mean, I don't know how much money that was. Probably about two dollars and a quarter, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. But this boy became unruly. His mother apprenticed him to a barber in London, sent him there. And he didn't learn the barber trade very well. Instead, he got connected with a gang. He ran the streets of London. He drank. He and his buddies were out one night, and they came to a gypsy fortune teller on the side of the road. They shared their liquor with her. She got all liquored up. And then she looked at him and pointed to him and said, you're going to have children and grandchildren. And he said it was like a knife stabbed into his heart when he heard that. And he said, I've got to change. If I'm going to be the father of children who are going to have children, my grandchildren, I have to change. But he didn't want to say anything to his buddies. He wanted to retain his macho image with them. And so what he said, and this came to his mind too at the same moment as that lady said that, George Whitfield, who was one of the greatest preachers in the history of the English-speaking world, any era of history, was preaching nearby, and he'd heard about that he was a man of God. And he said, let's go make fun of him when he's preaching. They get there, and the text which he had chosen is Matthew 3.8, where he's addressing the religious leaders of the day, and he calls them, you brood of vipers. When are you going to realize that the day of God's wrath is coming. And then when he said the wrath of God is coming, so it's said, when Whitfield said that, Whitfield began to weep. He was so brokenhearted at the thought of people being subject to the wrath of God. Wow. What a heart for God and for people. Three more years passed. He was 20 years old when he finally gave his life to Christ, Robert Robinson. And when he did, he wrote that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tremendous. And there's a line in there that I think of often. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all have that tendency, even those of us who know the Lord, we have that tendency and what is the corrective for that? Is that we think about this verse of Scripture. The eyes of the Lord 
move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are his. Look at Asa. He had a seeking heart, right? This is the kind of heart that God supports, a heart that seeks him. For most of his life, he had that kind of seeking heart, a trusting heart. We see Throughout this passage, there is reference to his trust based on hearing God's word. When the prophet spoke, the first prophet spoke, what did he do? He listened. He obeyed. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. We have to be men and women who subject ourselves in humility before the word of God. It's verified by obedience. He obeyed the Lord. We saw how he removed all these substitute objects of worship. He brought renewal and revival. God did through him. It's verified by obedience. It's not enough just to say, I believe. What we have to do is we have to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. That's true faith. If your faith doesn't change your life, it's a dead faith. If it doesn't result in your ministering to other people in the name of Christ, it's not real. And it was multiplied in others. And to show you what I mean, look at chapter 15, verse 9. Verse 15, 9. You didn't read this, so I want to read it with you. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them, for many defected to him from Israel. Why? They saw that the Lord his God was with them. Do you know what will draw people to Christ through your life and this church's life more than any intentional attempt to reach people. There's nothing wrong with intention. Care and share is good. Sharing Jesus intentionally through different ministries is good. But it's when people see that God is with us and they want in on that. They want to have that kind of relationship with God. And that's what happens when we trust the Lord. It's based on hearing the Word of God, verified by obedience to the Lord, and multiplied in the lives of others. So Asa had a seeking heart. This is the kind of heart that God strongly supports, a trusting heart, and he had a peaceful heart. We see that. It's referred to in this passage. But something happened to Asa. We've seen it. Let me finish by going to the verses which we read to begin out of Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 2, the last two lines says, the kind of person that the Lord sets his eyes on is characterized by three things. Did you catch them as we read them? A humble heart. That's important. It's essential. Secondly, a contrite spirit where a person is humbled by the thought of who she is or who he is. And when God really reveals himself to us, we see ourselves and it's not a pretty picture. And therefore, We are humbled. This is what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he was saying is, Blessed are people who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They can't cut it on their own. The next beatitude, which builds on the first, is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you know what happens? When people see who they are apart from God through Jesus Christ and see how sinful they are and the condition of their souls, what happens is they begin to grieve and mourn, to grieve over their lostness. And then God responds. When Ezra read the law, book of the law from 
from 6 a.m. to noon, and the people wept when they heard the reading of the Word of God. They were mourning their own spiritual bankruptcy. And what did Ezra and Nehemiah say to the people? He said, this is not a time for grieving. You've, you've done what is the normal response, to grieve over your sin. This is a day for rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Lord gives us His joy only. We want joy now. We don't want to have to deal with the evaluation of our lives, which shows things as they really are. But look, there's no shortcut to knowing the Lord. You've got to repent of your sin to come to the Lord. You've got to know you're a sinner and repent of it to really know the Lord. But what relief there is. Isn't it relief? Can you remember when you trusted Christ, gave your life to Christ, repented of your sin? Do you remember that? Was there relief for you? Was there a great burden lifted? Definitely there was. And what is the last thing? Humble, contrite, and then what's the last thing? Trembles at his word. Trembles at his word. Have you ever had any experience with the Lord where you trembled at his word? Trembled at the thought that you're in the presence of a holy God, just like when Isaiah finally saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. It's recorded in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. What did he say? Here the uh, seraphs saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then what did he say about himself? Woe is me. Woe to me. For I'm a man of unclean lips. What had he been doing the first five chapters? He was speaking prophecy. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the presence of a people of unclean lips. God's calling us today to encounter with Him. To know Him. We must seek Him. Once we seek Him with a whole heart, He lets us find Him. And once we find Him, He lets us lean completely upon Him. Not just sort of, not just in crisis situations, not when you're having a trouble in your life, but where it becomes a way of life for you. Would you bow your head? Have you ever made that kind of commitment to the Lord? Or if you have, have you kind of become like Asa and you're in neutral spiritually? You're just coasting. If you're in either of those places today and you sense God speaking to you, don't wait three years like Robert Robinson did before he gave his life to Jesus. Today is the day of your salvation. In your heart, right now, in your own words, would you say to the Lord, Lord, I have run my own life and I have ruined it. I need you, Lord. I don't deserve you or your forgiveness or your love, but I need it, Lord. I need you. Would you please come into my life, Lord? Fill me with yourself. Thank you, Lord. Amen.